I'm going to invite you to stand right now. We're going to listen to God's Word, a passage that's probably familiar. Go ahead, stand up. Matthew chapter 1, right at the beginning of the New Testament, verses 18 to 25, tell the story of almost the birth of Jesus through the eyes and the experience of Joseph, a man nearby but not directly implicated in what was going on. He thought of himself as an innocent bystander, someone who'd been kind of abused by a situation, a a, a victim bystander of what was going on, but he found out that God wanted him directly involved. And I want you to listen to the story. I know you've heard it before, but listen and pay special attention again. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, a couple of days ago, I read a really interesting online article from uh, a magazine called Christianity Today, but it was an online article. It was about Christmas and about the challenge of keeping Christ central in our, in our Christmas, as our experiences of Christmas, because he is simply not central in the Christmas that is celebrated and has become such a big deal in our larger society. He's part of it. But he's not central in it. In the largest society, Christmas is happy holidays. In the largest society, there actually is not such a big difference when you're you're buying a gift and you say, uh, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays to someone. Most people hear that meaning the same thing. Because that's how it's come about and that's how it's been celebrated. It's about shopping and about trees and lights and traditions and gifts and Santa and all of that stuff, and, and for sure, certain songs and certain stories. And Jesus is part of the picture. His name sort of gave the name to the day and the season. But, but he's just a part of the scene. Or he's an option in the larger cultural smorgasbord of how you might observe and celebrate Christmas for yourself. Sometimes there and sometimes not. Sometimes in the center, for some people, but sometimes way off on the periphery. Hardly there at all. The story of Christmas in our culture and our society has had a long history. And it has been through lots of changes in, in our lifetime, but, but even especially long before we were around. I want to just describe, based on that article, just a little bit of the evolution of Christmas in American society and Western society. In the early years of, our, of, of the story of our country, the Puritans had a big influence. Uh, Puritan, you know that, that category of people, okay? 
You've heard the word. You've studied things about him. And you know especially that Puritan is a swear word. Okay? Puritan's a bad word. If you call someone a Puritan, you're saying they are self-righteous. They're angry. They don't want to have any fun. And they don't want anybody else to have fun in life. All right? But the truth is, if you actually go back and study the history, they did care about life, and they did care about doing things well, and they didn't like things that were wrong. And yet, I think we've totally missed the, the note on what the Puritans were really about. The Puritans have a, a name that is a label that's not so good about being harsh and judgmental. But let's just say that whatever their faults were, they were profoundly committed to faith in Jesus Christ and the living God and the Holy Bible. They were profoundly committed Christians. And they did not celebrate Christmas. Now this might sound like Puritanism for you, to you for a moment, but I want you to think about what they were reacting against. One reason, according to David Taylor in his article, is this. The Feast of Christmas had changed way back when. It had come to involve a great deal of intemperate behavior, to say the least. During these long winter lights, nights, people feasted in excess, got drunk, engaged in wanton sex, rioted in the streets and barged into the homes of the well-to-do and demanded that they be given the best of the pantry. Christmas back then looked more like a frat party gone horribly wrong. It had little to do with Jesus. And so the Puritans said, we're not going to celebrate that holiday. Just not going to do it. And in the United States, partly from their influence early on, there was little celebration of Christmas. Try this on for, for size. From 1789 to 1859, the United States Congress frequently met for business on December 25th. Public schools met on Christmas Day in the city of Boston until 1870. And Alabama was the very first state to officially and legally recognize Christmas as a holiday in 1836. 60 years after the declaration was signed, one state said yes to Christmas. Um, things were just different way back when. One of the influences in America was actually a British influence in the 19th century. Queen Victoria was queen for a long time in England, and she had a lot of impact, not so much just with her direct power, but by her cultural influence. And she loved Christmas. She was all about Christmas. She wanted Christmas to be important in British society, but for her, the center of Christmas wasn't a group of Christians gathered together as the church to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It was a family-centered, warm, domestic kind of holiday. It was something that was good, and, and Jesus undoubtedly had a place and a role in it, but it was really about the family getting together. It was a children-centric holiday. It was about Gift-giving, but in the end, excessive gift-giving oftentimes. And, and as time went along, significant commercialization. Charles Dickens was another British character of significance in how people experienced Christmas. You know, among the books he wrote was the, the relatively short tale of A Christmas Carol and Ebenezer Scrooge. But I don't know if you ever thought about this, really. And, and I love A Christmas Carol, and I'm thankful for Charles Dickens. And I like the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. And yet, I want you to notice that when Dickens tells the story, he's encouraging us to have the spirit of Christmas stirred up within us and in our, in our, in our lives, not the spirit of Christ. And the spirit of Christmas and the spirit of Christ are not exactly the same thing. What Dickens was encouraging was good. 
He was encouraging humanitarianism, but his focus wasn't on the humanity of Jesus and this story and this boy and this life and what it means for human beings and human life. St. Nicholas, you've heard of him? He was a bishop, a leader in the early church, way back when. He was a lover of Jesus. He was a pastor of his people. He cared for the spiritual needs of the community where he was a pastor and a bishop. He especially cared for the poor and those who suffered in his community. All of that was true. But as time went along, went on, particularly in the 1800s, St. Nicholas evolved quite a bit. In 1810, there was a woodcut, a a piece of artistic representation that was commissioned by the New York Historical Society to be a part of their annual December 6th St. Nicholas Day celebration gathering. And if you were to take a look at that 1810 artistic representation of St. Nicholas, you would see a bishop from way back when, a man dressed as a pastor caring for his people, wearing what would have been in in almost ancient times, uh, well over a thousand years ago, would have, would have been worn by a bishop doing his calling and in his work. But things were already changing. A year before, in 1809, the writer Washington Irving portrayed Nicholas as flying over trees in a horse-pulled wagon and sliding down chimneys to give gifts to people. In 1823, a poem was published with individually named reindeer. And over a century later, in 1939, things were still growing. Montgomery Ward, any of you remember that name? All right. Montgomery Ward was in competition with Marshall Fields. Anybody remember that name? And one of the ways that they were trying to work on that, their marketing men, their advertising men, came up with a character known as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, 1939 advertising campaign. Here's the thing. As Christmas evolved in America, it had less and less to do with Jesus and more and more to do with everything else. And don't get me wrong. Don't, don't hear, I'm not in a tirade. I'm not angry about these things. I, I like Santa. I like the story of Santa. I will see Miracle on 34th Street for about the umpteenth time in my life, about the 47th time in my life probably this year. I, st- I, I like it. I like all the music, the The secular music, too. I enjoy it all. I like humanitarianism. I like the Christmas spirit. And yet, it it worries me for us as Christians, but also for anybody else, to totally miss the story of Jesus in the midst of Christmas. And it's possible. It has less and less to do with Jesus and more and more to do with everything else. It has less and less to do with the church, for example, and more and more to do with business and, and commerce. It kept growing and growing, Christmas. It, the music, all the music, wasn't just Hark the Herald Angels Sing and, and O Come All Ye Faithful, but it was also Jingle Bells and Frosty and Here Comes Santa Claus, Here Comes Santa Claus. And White Christmas and Wonder Wonderland, so much so that the Christian radio stations you and I, many of us listen to, play all of that music too. It's not a sin, don't, don't miss my point. But Christmas is so huge that Christmas isn't about Jesus, or not centrally in our society. Here's the thing. In reality, Jesus is huger yet. 
We just don't always see it and understand it. The strange thing is that there is frequently almost no room. Here's the irony. There's almost no room in our celebrations for Jesus at the time of his birth. Go figure, kind of, cha- kind of strange. There's almost no room for Jesus in the story to begin with. There's almost no room for Jesus or Mary in the story of Joseph's life. There wasn't room in the inn in Bethlehem for Jesus. There wasn't room in the world for another king in the world of King Herod. And so all those young boys were killed and slaughtered in Bethlehem. There wasn't room in the end for Jesus in Bethlehem. His family had to run to Egypt. John put it like this in his Gospel's first chapter. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Except for a a, a few shepherds, except for a few family members, for a long time, nobody really got who this little kid was. And even many years later, people listened and people heard from a distance, but most people, while he was on earth, never heard his name. It would be so easy in our world or our lives, let alone our celebration of something that's actually named for him, for there to be no room for him at all. Well, I want to go back to Matthew 1 for a few moments this morning, where we were two weeks ago, when we especially talked about the word in the name, Emmanuel. I want to focus on something just a little bit different this morning. That time and that moment when there almost wasn't room for Jesus in Joseph's life. When the the angel visited Joseph in a dream one night, he was struggling with the news and the reality that his wife-to-be, Mary, was pregnant and that he had nothing to do with it. She wasn't just pregnant, she was showing She was showing more and more every day and every week, and it was becoming more of a public matter. And Joseph didn't know what to do about it. Joseph undoubtedly felt um, hurt and disappointment. Undoubtedly felt let down. Maybe felt angry with a kind of righteous anger. This is wrong. This wasn't supposed to happen to me. I've been committed. I've been faithful. I loved her. I chose her. And now look at this. But Matthew was a good guy. He really was. He was a righteous man. He didn't want to mistreat her. He didn't want to destroy her life. He didn't want to drag her name through the mud. He wanted to deal with it quietly and appropriately and generously. But he wanted to cut it off. He wanted to cut off that relationship with her. And with whoever this kid was who was growing in her. But then the angel. You know the word for angel in Greek is the word messenger. So God's angel is God's messenger. God's messenger said to him, don't do that, Joseph. Stick with Mary. Mary, Mary, because the child in her is not because of some moment of passion between Mary and some of the guy. She wasn't fooling around and falling in love. She, she wasn't even just hooking up for one night with, with, when you were nowhere near. This is the work of God. My spirit, God's spirit, was at work in her in a miraculous way so that she is pregnant, so that a child is growing in her, and it's God's plan. No, you didn't do it. But what God's going to do in the world to make a difference in the lives of human beings isn't about what you could ever do, Joseph. Because what I'm going to do through her and through that child is going to be what I'm going to do for you, too. So stick with Mary. 
This is God's work and God's surprise. And so Joseph, stay with her. And Joseph, be with her when that baby is born. And Joseph, when that baby is born, I want you to remember this. I want you to call that baby's name Jesus. Call him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Names are important. Names have meanings. They're not that significant in that way to us, not most of us. In our culture, we pick names because we like how they look and we like how they sound and we like maybe because of what they're associated with, with somebody else, maybe a family member from a previous generation or somebody we admire, whatever. But names have meanings. In ancient times and in, in, in this day, Jewish people would name their children with a meaning, almost with a sentence. The name was like an abbreviation for a sentence, and it signified something greater. So here's some, some of those Hebrew names, which are sometimes popular today. Michael means who's like God. Who is like God? David means beloved or beloved of God. Jeremiah, God is high, God is exalted, or exalted of God, exalted by God. Daniel, God is my judge. Gabriel. God is my strength. How about the name Jesus? It was a very popular name at that time. Lots of kids were named Jesus. People loved that name. It had been around for a long time. In the Old Testament, the great character Joshua, who followed on as Moses' partner and then Moses' successor to lead God's people into the promised land, Joshua, that's the same name as Jesus, Yahshua. But what did it mean? It meant real simply, Yahweh saves, or God saves, or God rescues, or salvation comes from God, or maybe just salvation. That's what the word means. Jesus was, in essence, not as a loose way of talking and not as a way of taking his name in vain, but as a serious expression of prayer and request. Jesus was a, a word or a name often uttered in the moment of childbirth when a mom was giving birth, or so it said. Now, I don't know a lot about childbirth. I suppose in some ways it would be best to say, I, I, I don't know nothing about childbirth. <laughs> but I've heard rumors. And rumors, uh, the word on the street is it's not always easy. It's not always a piece of cake. Sometimes it's a very hard reality. Sometimes the actual experience of the hours of labor is, well, laborious. Labor. And uh, sometimes the moms, it was said, would cry out to God, Lord, help. <laughs> and so a child would be ma- named, the Lord helps. Jesus, as a prayer. And then they would name that child Jesus. It's a lot like us when we often pray. Whether we're great prayers or not, whether we're great believers in God or maybe even sometimes when we're not believers in God. You know the old saying from the World War I days that there are no atheists in foxholes. An awful lot of people in a moment of crisis, in a moment of pain, in a moment of hopelessness, in a moment of uncertainty, in a moment of depression, don't know where to go. They cry out, God help me. If you only help me, I'll believe in you. If you only help me, I'll follow you. That's a Jesus kind of a prayer. And that's what went on a long time ago. That's what the name Jesus means. That God helps, that God saves, that God rescues. But what does he save us from? 
Matthew tells the story of how that messenger gave a couple of different names. One was a public name and one was kind of a private name. One was to be used on the street and the other one was just a reminder. That name, Emmanuel, is a name that tells, uh, told Joseph and others who Jesus is. Tells us who he is. Emmanuel, Jesus is, this baby, this kid, this man is God with us. God in the flesh, in our world, next to us, in our lives. God with us, that's who he is. But the other name, the public name, talked about what Jesus was here for, what he came to do. The name Jesus means God saves and God rescues. And that name was what it was all about. But what does he rescue us from? He rescues us from sins. But the crazy thing the messenger said was, he rescues his people from their sins. And almost all of his people were mostly like you and me most of the time. I want to be rescued from other people's sins. I want to be rescued from the implications of sins and the stuff, the bad stuff that comes along with it. But my number one prayer frequently isn't to be saved from my own sins. But the messenger said the greatest need of human beings is a rescue from their own sins. There was an old cartoon that went something like this 50 years ago or so. We have met the enemy and he is us. And Jesus came to deal with that. Hey, I want to step back for a moment to uh, uh, what, that larger Christmas world for a moment. Is that okay? I want to name a movie. It's a movie that I don't really remember watching when I was a kid, even as an adolescent. Really, when I was in my 20s, if, if, if my memory is right, it seemed to be rising in, in um, viewership and, and, and people talking about it. But I know you've heard of it. It's called It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? A whole lot of you. Can I do the reverse? How many of you have never seen It's a Wonderful Life? All right, there's, there's, okay, okay. It's a pretty good, It's a Wonderful Life is is actually a wonderful movie, okay? I think it's pretty good. I want you to, I want to throw some pictures up on the screen here for a moment and just talk about the situation. This guy, his name is Jimmy Stewart. He was born in 1918. He died in 1997, 89 years old. In his day and age, one of the greatest American actors, one of the most dominant figures in American cinema. He plays the role of George Bailey. George Bailey um, was born. Let's go ahead and show the next screen. Uh, Oh, it's right there, right there. The town, Bedford Falls. That's where the action of this story takes place. Bedford Falls is somewhere in upstate New York. It's a small town. It's a small town in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. 20s, thriving time. 30s, the era of the Depression. 40s, the time of WW2 and right after. And in this town that George was born into, when he was growing up, all he wanted to do in life was to get out of the town. I mean, it was okay, and, and he liked his family, he liked his friends, and he appreciated it all. But what he wanted to do was get out of town. He wanted to tour the world. He wanted to see the great cities, not just of the United States, but the great cities of the world. And that was his dream and aspiration. But one thing led to another, especially his father's death, and a man named Mr. Potter who was going to destroy what his dad had given his life for. And he stayed in town as the head of Bailey Building and Loan, a company that helped people, helped people, particularly those who were not from the upper echelons of society, be able to get a home and afford a home and be able to live where they lived. But you know about the middle of It's a Wonderful Life, the story becomes It's a Horrible Life. 
In fact, if you'd never seen the movie before and you get to the middle, you're thinking, what in the world am I watching this to get into the Christmas spirit for? This is depressing. What's this about? Something goes wrong when some money goes missing. I want you to just take a moment and and view some clips right here. And did you put the envelope in your pocket? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe, uh, maybe. I don't want any. Maybe. We've got to find that money. Uncle Billy, look, do you realize what's going to happen if we don't find it? How should I know? What do you think I am? A dictionary? Tommy, stop that. Stop it. Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and over again. Now stop it. Stop it. some sort of an accident, my company shortened their accounts. The bank examiner got there today. I've got to raise $8,000 immediately. Oh, that's what the reporters wanted to talk to you about. The reporters? Yes, they called me up today from your building and loan. Oh, there's a man over there from the DA's office, too, who's looking for you. Please help me, Mr. Potter. Help me, won't you, please? Can't you see what it means to my family? I'll pay any sort of a bonus on the loan, any interest. If you still want the building and loan, I'm... George, could it possibly be there's a slight discrepancy in the books? No, sir, there's nothing wrong with the books. I've just misplaced $8,000. I can't find it anywhere. You misplaced $8,000? Yes, sir. Have you notified the police? No, sir, I I didn't want the publicity. Harry's homecoming tomorrow. (laughs) You ain't going to believe that one. What have you been doing, George? Um, playing the market with the company's money? No, sir. No, sir. I haven't. Oh, is it a woman, then? Uh, you know, it's all over town that you've been giving money to Violet Bick. What? <laughs> Not that it makes any difference to me, but why do you come to me? Why don't you go to Sam Wainwright and ask him for the money? I can't get a hold of him. He's in Europe. Well, what about all your other friends? Well, I don't have that kind of money, Mr. Potter. You know that. You're the only one in town that can help me. <laughs> Something really went wrong here. Suddenly, $8,000, that may or may not at this moment sound like a lot of money to you, but it was a real lot of money back when. And there was a crisis. And that crisis led to to anger. It it, it led to dissatisfaction, to to, uh, uh, hopelessness, to, to reaching out to anyone. Ultimately, we didn't show another scene where he went to a bridge and overlooked water. And he chose to jump off because he wanted to end his life. And it all came down. The the thing that was bringing it all crashing down was the reality of a debt that he could not pay. There was something laying on his life. There was something he was culpable for. There was something that he owed. It was his company. He was the head of it. It was his responsibility. And he owed that money and there was no way he had the resources to pay it. And that debt weighed down on him, and he didn't know what to do about it. He thought of everything he could. He spilled all his mess on everybody he loved close by because of it. He reached out to a rotten man for help. And in the end, he wanted to end it. Because what was the point? There may be nothing as bad as a debt that you owe that you cannot pay. And I owe you, and you can't, 
get rid of that there's no way to address. And that's, as much as anything, what the gift of God in Jesus Christ at Christmas is all about. Pastor Neil last week in a sermon referred to the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed expresses the core of the Christian faith. And in a lot of ways, the very heart of it, the longest part of it, is the telling of a story. It's the story of Jesus Christ and of his life and about his birth. His birth to, through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. But here's the complete sentence from that part of the creed. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. The story of Christmas isn't just that the baby Jesus was born. The story of Christmas isn't just that the baby Jesus was born to a virgin mother. The story of Christmas is more than that. It is that God sent his son to this earth with a mission and a purpose. It was to live. It was to show God. It was help people understand who God was and what God is really like. But at the heart of it all was the mission to save people from their own sins, to pay a debt that they could never pay because the debt was too big. It's great when there's a debt you owe and it's no big deal and you can wipe it out and take care of it. But what about when there is a debt that's too big to pay? In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul just gives a little picture. And I want you to remember, we don't quickly associate these things. We separate Christmas and Good Friday by months. And the people in our world are not selling lots of, lots of uh, product at Good Friday time. We don't throw parties in Good Friday, even though we've named it good. And it's not necessarily a holiday anymore. But in the Bible understanding, if you want to understand what Christmas is about, you need to understand what Good Friday is about. And they go together. Because Jesus wasn't just born to live, and he wasn't just born to run, and he wasn't just born to teach, and he wasn't just born to heal. Jesus was born to die. And the reason he was born to die was because you and I and all of us owe a debt we cannot pay. It's a debt bigger than anything we've ever conceived of. And when we think about life and we think about moral life and we think about living a good life, we like to choose our own rules, our own laws, and things are shifting all the time in the culture around us. But here's one thing that's a constant in the world in which we live. We think we can measure up on our own. And we are all about grading on the curve. Aren't you? I remember sophomore year, high school, algebra, second year algebra trigonometry class. I was supposedly an AP student in math, and I think I briefly was, but something went wrong, and it disappeared. And, and I'm utterly useless for my kids in math now. But back when, I, I was competitive. And that, that particular test was like the second or third test of the year, and I, I was used to getting A's or B's in math, and, and suddenly the test came back, and it was like 54 and the only good news was just about everybody else was with me. And Mr. Gosh, gosh, Mr. Gosh, that was a bad test. <laughs> Mr. Gosh kind of ripped it up. He said, I, I got to grade this on a curve. I'm just going to give you some kind of credit, but I can't flunk everybody or I'll lose my job. You know, We were all about the curves or all about dropping the low numbers from the, 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 the credit score at all. 
That's not how it works in life. Your life and my life matters more than a second-year algebra trigonometry class. God doesn't just look the other way. God doesn't just say, let bygones be bygones. God doesn't just say, I forgive anything because it doesn't really matter because everything matters. In Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul's writing about Jesus and his connection with us. I want you to look at some words. Put them up on the screen here. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I want you to look at at the last line of verse 13. Middle of the third line there. He forgave us all our sins. Do you know what it's like to be forgiven a debt? Do you know what it's like to screw up something really bad and to have someone say, okay? Here's the thing about debts, though. Um, It doesn't do any good if I have a debt for you to say, I forgive you. There's still the debt. It has to be paid. It's got to be dealt with somehow. It doesn't just disappear. You can't say abracadabra and it's all better. God forgave us all our sins. But how do you do this? By having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Canceled it. You know what the charge of our legal indebtedness is? It is an I-O-U. An I-O-U. It is your I-O-U and my I-O-U and what we owe Maybe to our own values and our own commitments and our own aspirations, but especially what we owe to God. And we owe him perfect love and perfect loyalty and perfect gratitude and a perfect life. And I don't know about you, but the truth is I've done, relatively speaking, okay in some ways, but I've never come anywhere near to perfect. I've never come anywhere near to loving God with all I am and all I have. I've never come anywhere near to loving all of my neighbors as I do myself. I I wouldn't even know how to begin to get anywhere near to that level of perfection in a world where God doesn't grade on a curve. But this word is that in Jesus Christ, God has canceled. What's the phrase? God has canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. I've heard the story that back when, in Roman times, when someone was accused of a crime and sent away to jail, that, 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 that next to the cell in which they were kept, there was a sign that detailed exactly what they'd done and how many days, months, or years they had to serve. And when they'd served their time, that sheet of, of, of papyrus was taken away, and, and it was marked, canceled, dealt with. It was notarized. So that when that person traveled around and walked around, they could always pull it out and say, I've paid my price. But what about when it's a price you can't pay? You know what that's called? It's called a capital offense. And those were sometimes put above someone when they were being executed on a cross. Do you remember how Jesus was executed? And above him it said, King of the Jews. That was the charge. Sedition against the Roman emperor. Jesus claiming to be a king in a world where there already was one and there wasn't room for two. And what Paul is saying is what God has done is he's taken 
your IOU and mine, and he's charged it to Jesus. And he's put it up as a, as a mark against him, not against us. I'm not on the cross, he is. But up behind his head is the charge he's dying for. The Romans thought it was just king of the Jews, but God knew it was for something else and something more. That's what he did. Look at the next phrase. Which stood against us and condemned us. You know, when you consider your life, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm a pretty, I think I'm a pretty sunny person. I'm an optimist. I'm a glass half full guy. Anybody else? I like glass half full people. You lift me up. Glass half empty people, there's some of you, there's some of you here. I, I love you, but, you know, some of us take each other down. Okay, I'm, I'm, I, I like that, but you know, when I consider things, when I look deeply, when I measure my life as a Christian, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a citizen, as a human being, I know, I know again and again, I'm not getting, there's something wrong. I'm, I'm not who I want to be. I'm not, I'm not right, God, on my own. There's a charge even in my own spirit against me, and it condemns me. But finally, look at this last phrase. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He nailed it there. That's what Christmas is about. That's the gift that God offers to you and me. In order to save us from sin, it takes more. There's a power of sin in our lives. God is going to work on that in your life. He's working on it right now. Someday, God is going to take us away from the presence of sin, or maybe the very presence of sin will be taken away from us, and we will live in a world where Jesus rules, and our hearts and our lives and our, our, our minds and our bodies, along with all the people around us, will be fully in tune with that world, and it will be a blessed existence and a blessed life such as we've never seen or envisioned or imagined ever before. But what Jesus does in a moment in our lives is he forgives you. It's dangerous stuff. The message isn't, so it doesn't matter how I live and I can do whatever I want and he forgives me. Wrong conclusion, but not wrong premise. The premise is this, that Jesus Christ has already dealt with every failing, every brokenness, every falling short in your life so far. And there are things in your future that you haven't thought about yet where you will fail. You will fail later today. My prediction. Hope that's not a glass half empty prediction. I just think that's called realism. We, we all struggle. We're never, we're never perfectly perfect at best. But Jesus has already dealt with it, forgiven us all our sins. I heard a, I'm going to invite the, the band to step up. I heard a message the other day. I don't listen to sermons actually all that often, but I'm in a, a group of pastors who meets once a month. And this last month, we all decided to, or we had to listen to a sermon and evaluate it. And we were given a list of pastors. And so I found the name of this pastor. I'd never heard of him. Charlie uh, um, was his name. And, and I listened to a couple of his sermons. And I was like, wow, this guy's good. And this one sermon, he had a story at the end was just a little more dramatic than any story I have quite like it. He remembered a time when he was in school and was involved in a very serious accident. 
Not only did it destroy a car, not only did it total a vehicle, but he was hurt in the incident. He was taken to the emergency room, and there were doctor's appointments after that. And as he was going through it, he knew there were problems because this was, whatever else you think about Obamacare, this was days before Obamacare. He was not on his mommy's uh, insurance anymore. He was a young adult without insurance. And there were costs rising that he had no ability to pay at all. The emergency room costs, the the CT scan costs, the physicians and everybody walking in and out to talk talk to him, and the ongoing treatment. And uh, he reached out to his brother just for help and advice. His brother was an attorney. He lived in another town. And he said, one day, the mail came. And I, I, I saw this letter, and I recognized who it was from immediately. It was my brother's pitiful penmanship. I, I, I could recognize it anywhere. And, and I took it, and I sat down at a table, and I put it down, and I sat down, and I opened up that letter, and I pulled it out. And it was the bill from the hospital. It was all the medical bills put together. And he looked at the sum on the bottom, and it just about sunk him. He couldn't imagine But then his eyes went up to the top and there was a little post-it note from his brother. And the post-it note said, yesterday paid in full. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. That's the gift of Christmas. Not the only gift, but that's at the heart of it because without that, we are somehow excluded from God and life with him. That Jesus Christ has paid in full what you and I owe. You know an old song. Many of you do. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. So go sing Santa songs. And hum along to Sleigh Ride in Winter Wonderland and share the gifts and have a great time. And uh, with Dickens, celebrate the spirit of Christmas. But please, don't misunderstand that what's at the heart of our lives and can be at the heart of every human being's life is the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. God with us, come to save us. Ultimately, from everything that's wrong, but first, from our own culpability and our own sins. Born to die so that we could live. Amen.